This morning's scripture reading is from 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 10. I appeal to you, brothers, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree with one another so that there may be no divisions among you, and that you may be perfectly united in mind and thought. One of our deacons, JJ, you know, uh, the Macaulays are going to be moving. And uh, the Lord gave JJ something to put on his heart um, that he wants to share with the congregation. So we're going to give him just a couple minutes to share with us. And then uh, we'll go on from there before I hand it over. I just got to say that uh, I'm Dave, I'm really glad that this was your illustration and not something they put up here to yank the preacher off the stage or something like that. So, and JJ, keep in mind, if you go too long, I've got that shepherd's crook right there. Thanks, Calvin. Yeah, I promise I won't go too long. Um, yeah, I uh, appreciate the opportunity to um, say just a few things for um, our family. Uh, as you know, uh, I took a new job in Pullman, Washington, and Corey and I and the girls will be relocating to Moscow, Idaho. Um, this is likely my last Sunday to worship with everyone, and um, so I just wanted to quickly say a few things. In John chapter 13, verse 34 and 35, it says, A new commandment I give, give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. As we made the move from Kansas to Oregon, it was a extremely uh, scary and anxious time for us. We knew no one uh, on the West Coast. So as we looked for a church family, we looked for love. And we found it here in Eugene. Unbeknownst to me, we had family connections as Jeannie May is the aunt to my brother-in-law, Terry. And it was, a it was a welcome surprise. My family will take away probably the first interaction we had that they were here, and I know that my girls will carry this for the rest of their lives as they were greeted with, we've been praying for you. See, this church is a church of prayer. They not only pray for those that are here and those that are struggling or hurting, but they pray for those that are unseen. And we felt that prayer as we got here and connected with this family. Throughout the last three years, it was my honor to be able to serve as a deacon, to be able to work with this congregation and to move things forward. But we leave here with so many other things. We challenged our family to grow. And my daughter, Ella, took on Christ in baptism here because of the influence of this congregation. So I'll leave you with words from Romans chapter 1, verses 8 through 12. First, I want to thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you because your faith is proclaimed in all the world. For God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his Son, that without ceasing I mention you always in my prayers, asking that somehow by God's will I might now at last succeed in coming to you. For I long to see you 
that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you, that is, that we may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, by both yours and mine. So while we leave and we start our new life in Idaho, I want you to know that we will pray without ceasing for this congregation and for this body. And we will long to be back and to be with you and expect us to come back and to be part of you again as our travels take us around. God bless you, and thank you for everything that you've given our family over the last three years. In Christ, thank you. We're going to miss you guys. Okay. Thank you for joining us today. We're glad to see you. And uh, we are continuing our series in 1 Corinthians. And uh, we're just going to jump right into that because just because JJ had something to say doesn't mean I'm going to preach for a shorter amount of time. So just get that expectation out of your minds. Well, we uh, talked about a few things that Paul was doing in the introduction to his letter to the Corinthian church last week. What gives the church strength that they need to deal with the issues that they face? You know, it's, it's all a truth that we've come to know that churches have issues, and we don't always get everything 100% right 100% of the time. And... Uh, Paul has some tough stuff he's got to tell these Corinthian believers, some tough things. And so he really makes an effort to give the common ground that we stand on up front, uh, that it's good to call these things to mind when we need to deal with the tough issues. First, the church belongs to God. It's his. It's bigger than any individual wants or desires. Number two, we share a mutual calling. We have a mission and a purpose that we share in common with one another. Uh, number three, we live in a reality that is bathed in grace and peace from our Lord. And he desires to give us grace and peace, to lead us ever deeper into grace and peace. We are a church that has already been made rich in every way. Anything that we are lacking, God himself will supply. He gives us a mission to do, and he gives us the means to do it. And number five, the faithfulness of God will keep us standing firm, that because of the faithfulness of God, you will be found blameless in Jesus Christ and what Christ does on your behalf. So Paul really lets, lets us know, hey, these are the things that we need to call to mind and need to remember. And now... Let's talk about the tough stuff. Uh, sometimes we think, if I just tiptoe around so-and-so long enough, the issue will just work out. If uh, I just keep my mouth shut about such-and-such, such, uh, this issue will just kind of go away. And honestly, sometimes it does. 
And there is wisdom, of course, in not overreacting. But just tolerating someone is very different than being united with them in the Holy Spirit. Those are two different things. So let's look at this high calling of Christian unity that Paul invites us to. As Mel read for us this morning, I appeal to you, brothers and sisters, in, name of our, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree with one another in what you say, and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be perfectly united in mind and thought. Perfectly united in mind and thought. We have all kinds of minds and all kinds of thoughts represented in this room right now. What Paul is asking for is nothing short of a miracle. <laughs> so what is a division? I was just thinking about that. It just simply stated, what is a division? It creates an us versus them situation. And uh, we constantly, we're people that are very creative. We're, we're constantly coming up new categories to define and box in. And uh, it, it constantly, we're giving ourselves over to these us versus them kinds of scenarios. And we play these scenarios and these ideas out in our mind. We're fed these ideas from the media that we consume. Uh, and we, these divides, it's just the pool of people that we can have fellowship with, it just constantly gets trimmed down smaller and smaller and smaller. And uh, eventually we end up at this point where, you know, I'm, I think my wife and I are the only ones that God is going to save, and I'm not even sure about my wife. And the, the groups get smaller and smaller, don't they? And eventually you end up with two. You end up with those who agree with me and those who are wrong. And that's the only groups there are in the end. Loss of perspective. Loss of perspective on a lot of things, divisions bring, uh, but a loss of perspective of who our real enemy is, and who is my brother. A division is a loss of our priorities, and this happens all the time. Uh, not to be mean to the churches or despairing of the heritage that I come from or the churches that I grew up here with in the United States, but when you lose focus on the mission of God, you're splitting over issues that don't matter a hill of beans a lot of times. What are we going to do with that church property back there? What are we going to do about the carpet or the pews or the... We find issues to take stands on and the divisions, they just... If we let the enemy get a hold of that, he will use that against us. And uh, when we lose the mission of God... I think those things kind of become inevitable. My brothers and sisters, some form, not form, from, that's a 
preacher mistake there. Some from Chloe's household have informed me that there are quarrels among you. What I mean is this. One of you says, I follow Paul. Another, I follow Apollos. Another, I follow Cephas. Still another, I follow Christ. So in Corinthians, they send Paul a letter, this list of questions that they have. But Paul has insider information from Chloe's household, does he not? It says right here. Paul doesn't just have the official presented issues. Paul has the inside scoop. Churches, groups, and individuals, uh, they have certain presenting issues. Certain things are okay to talk about. And sometimes we get a sense... uh, some of the counseling kind of work that I've done, you, you learn as a spiritual director that the presented issues are almost never the real issues. But there are certain things that we feel safe to deal with and other things that we just don't feel safe talking about. And uh, Paul knows that there are issues behind the issues that the Corinthians have presented. And so he jumps right into the most critical needs. Sometimes the issues that are presented are just a smokescreen. The most critical need that Paul jumps into is this issue of divisions in the body. What Paul is doing here is a certain kind of spiritual uh, triage, if you medical people Uh, can give me grace in what I'm going to share as someone who's kind of ignorant uh, of these things. But uh, I did something dumb, and I got up on top of a ladder, and I had a pole saw, and I cut a tree branch right above me, and that big old branch fell, and it knocked me off the ladder, and it hit my arm. It was very painful. It was a miserable experience, and I went to the ER, and when I go into the ER, they, they were like, I was glad I wasn't there on an overly busy day, but they were kind of like a well-oiled machine. And they had to assess the situation. And I was somewhere in the middle of the queue where, no, this guy doesn't have something life-threatening. There's no bones sticking out. There's, you know, there's not fluids everywhere. There's, somehow they have a system where they they try to look at what are the most crucial needs. So uh, someone came in, they read some vitals or something, and they were a higher priority than I was, and they took that person in right away. And then there was a guy who was complaining about his medications, he was grumpy with his wife, and I got to go ahead of that guy. So I was somewhere, I was somewhere in that middle ground. But it, it's an amazing thing, and I thought, Praise God that they've learned uh, in, in their field of expertise how to discern some of these things. This is what Paul is doing in this situation. There's spiritual triage that needs to take place. He knows that the most important issues to deal with are not things like meat sacrificed to idols. There's an emergency that's way more crucial. So I want to say something about these four factions. 
And you just think about these names and what we know, and this is me being creative a little bit, but I think there might be some truth to it. Paul is the guy who led a lot of us to the faith. He's the missionary who came in and got the ball rolling. He's the one who planted the church. Some of us would always have a heart for that person, a sense of loyalty toward that person. And Apollos is the guy who came in and watered. He was a guy who was eloquent. He, he is the right kind of preacher, the one who has the cool glasses and the skinny jeans and uh, whatever, whatever that, that look is that I am breaking the mold. <laughs> my wife was teasing me about my wardrobe the other day. Not that my wardrobe is so bad. It's just that the new additions to my wardrobe, they, they don't come very often. <laughs> and I just am happy to wear whatever out. As a teenager, I wasn't like that. It was, that was the name brands. It was the stuff. It was... Well, I, I digress, sorry. Paul, the guy who gets it all started, people love him. Apollos, fresh teaching fresh perspectives, brings all this energy. He's eloquent with his words. He refutes the Jews in debate, we're told, in Acts. So he's kind of the, the, the latest spiritual hero. Peter maybe represents the, the denomination or the organization. He's kind of the guy who said, upon this rock I will build the church. And then you have the people that have, because there's these other groups, this other group comes in, and these are the ones who say, it's Jesus, people, come on. And, which is not necessarily a bad thing, except it's making the, the Jesus group just one more group among these others. But it's also a kind of, you got, you know, you, do you know people who play the God trump card? The Lord told me. And you can't talk, you can't debate, you can't. So there's some of this stuff going on in this church. And Paul, he has a zero-tolerance policy for divisions among people who are called by God and called to holiness. Zero-tolerance policy. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Were you baptized into the name of Paul? It's not just sarcasm. These are rhetorical questions. Uh, meant to bring us to consider the bigger issue of Christian unity. Reading through 1 Corinthians, you could be tempted to kind of think, oh, those, I mean, divisions like this, factions, we all know this is just completely silly. Didn't they get it? Oh, those simple-minded poor Christians that they just... Why couldn't they? How is it possible that they were so blind? But the heart and the attitudes that led this early church to a crisis of divisions and factions, they're still at work in the church today. And uh, even some of you that I kind of talked a little bit about the sermon with beforehand, 
You're like, oh yeah, let me tell you about divisions. I know all about that. And you start speaking from these painful experiences that some of you have had to go through. Uh, and so these are kind of some reflections on some of the games that I see played today. Things that make unity in the body of Christ difficult for us today. Uh, and this is not an exhaustive list, but these are games that I find at work in my own heart sometimes, or that I've just seen a lot of in the church. So number one, attitudes that feed division or make unity difficult. A consumer mentality. Constantly shopping around for the best deal. Do you bring a consumer mentality with you to church? A church shopping mentality? And I'm not saying there's never a time to look for another church. God bless you if you're in that season. But how long is that season going on? There are waves of people who have not dug in deep with the church. And they're just kind of really floating, looking for the next best thing. And what's really sick about American Christianity is a lot of times churches cater to this. And we compete for the masses of church swisher, switchers, 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 rubber baby buggy bumpers. So we compete for these switchers because we get more people, there's more excitement, there's more energy, the bigger budget, we can keep up with the, the building better and all of these programs that we can run and fill in the blank. Who has the most insightful preaching? Who packages the best worship experience? Uh, where did I really feel the Spirit moving? Uh, who, has, who has the best program for our kids? Who is the friendliest and most welcoming? It's like these unspoken criteria and these judgments that we have running in the back of our minds. And when you stop giving me everything I think I need or I want, well... It's time to take my business somewhere else. Bless you. I'm just saying, if you're not aware, we're swimming in this environment of consumerism where the customer's always right. And we don't just suddenly take off all of those attitudes when we walk through the building doors. Some of those things we carry with us, and we just have to own that and let that challenge us and invite us to something more. Uh, second one, the words are right, but the spirit is all wrong. Have you heard? It's difficult in that you have this, I know that I've spoken the truth here. I know that I'm right. And the other person might know that I'm right too, but they just can't agree with me because I'm an, my attitude that I bring to it. And it takes humility on both sides of that equation, doesn't it? The truth, even beautiful truths of Scripture, we can use that in a way 
it's like a blunt club that we use to get people to do what we want. It's, 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 it's a sick thing to use the beautiful truths of God to drive people away from the one place that they need to be. It's a hard thing to be right about something and not use your position of rightness in a way that harms or hurts another person. It takes wisdom. It takes maturity to do that. It takes humility most of all. Number three, I call this one the comparison trap. You're looking at what other people are doing, constantly looking, well, what about them? What are they? It's like Peter, you know, and John uh, 20, 21. He's like, well, what about him? Why does John get a free pass? Why do I have to be the one led around by my belt or whatever? We constantly play these comparing games. And uh, if you are invested with the church, beware the sense of entitlement that comes with that. Well, I'm the one who, I know what I'm giving to the church in regard to money, in regard to uh, involvement, in regard to my own history here. We're the ones who've been here the longest. We are the ones who stayed when others left. We are the ones who are stuck doing all the work while the rest of you slackers, dot, dot, dot. Of course the church has slackers. We're not perfect. We're a spiritual hospital. We're coming to get better. And of course, 10% of us end up doing 90% of the work. But how do you handle those situations where someone has violated your sense of fair play? Well, they ought to. And you're, you're probably right. They ought to. But how do you not beat them up with that? How do you actually invite someone? It has to be good discipleship. And the other thing about the comparison trap, let me say, don't compare yourself to the most broken and weakest among us. Don't even compare yourself to the strongest and healthiest among us. Compare yourself to Jesus. When you have given more than Jesus, then you can complain. When you have sacrificed more than Jesus, then it's your turn to be the judge. Another one. Habitual takers. This church owes me. Beware that attitude. You're setting yourself up for constant disappointment. You're looking to other people for things that only God can give you. See, you were created with infinite wants and infinite desires. And that's a hole that we all carry. 
I can come up with new desires all the time, ideas of what I think I need, ideas of of what I want. But instead of taking that and expecting, hey, you need to take care of this with me, you need to fill this with me, well, doesn't it make sense to take our infinite wishes and our infinite desires and our infinite whole within us to the only person in the universe who has infinite love and infinite resources. Does that not make a certain kind of sense too? What if instead of an attitude of this church owes me dot 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 you came with a sense of humility this is the Lord's church and I will be there for your church Lord I will commit myself to help your church Lord not because they get it right but because you're worth it Jesus and I will do what I can to help make things better What if instead of just sitting back with our arms crossed, the pursed lip look kind of thing? We're good at this look in churches, like you've been weaned on pickle juice. (laughs) What if instead of that, these people, only a few of them greeted me? What if you made that your ministry? I'm going to be someone who welcomes others. And I'm going to go introduce myself to this church member who's been there 30 years and never made a point of, vis- of greeting visitors when they come. And I'm going to go introduce myself to them. Let them be embarrassed by that. And we take, because of our commitment to the Lord's church, We take our gifts and we lay them on the altar and we just try to go make things better. Make things better. What does this church owe you? Really, what do we owe you? It's the same thing you owe us. Let no debt remain outstanding except the continuing debt to love one another. Keep in mind what love is. What is biblical love? I'm not talking about a definition of love that says, if you don't give me what I want, then you don't love me. That's not love, that's manipulation. That's coercion. That's you trying to get your way. Another category that makes unity difficult, self-appointed church police. You you know who you are, church police. (laughs) Keep in mind, we have the Bible. Keep in mind, we have a Holy Spirit who is at work Keep in mind that we've been given elders and they have a task to complete in protecting this flock and helping guide and shepherd this flock. 
Can you just trust that? I'm not saying there's never a time to speak. I'm just saying let these things give you a perspective. How about the constant complainer? The constant complainer, if you don't give me what I want, then I don't like you. These are people who have learned that the squeaky wheel does, in fact, get the grease. It's just the reality of this world that we live in. And so I feel like it's my God-given job to be the squeak. Let me ask just an honest question. How do you behave when you don't get your way? What do you act like when someone tells you no? No. This doesn't mean there's never times to advocate for change, but please have wisdom in the way that you do this. Have patience in this. Have confidence in your leaders and submit to their authority because they keep watch over you as those who must give an account. Do this so that their work will be a joy, not a burden, for that would be of no benefit to you. Do you ever think about that as, as, as my task? Is to make my elders' work a joy? No, the elders are there to give me what I want and to put those other people in their place because they're wrong. I think about an environment where we're all out-competing each other and making our elders' work a joy. What kind of environment is that? That would just be amazing. I would love that. Here's another category. I call this person the rugged individualist. This is, if you want things done right, you need to do them yourself. Rugged individualist. I don't need anyone or anything. I'll take care of myself like any responsible adult would. Thank you very much. One problem is with rugged individualists is they tend to have a complete lack or compassion toward anyone else who's not completely self-sufficient. They, they needed help? What's wrong with those people? Don't they know that... Beware our silent judgments. I don't have anything nice to say, so I won't say anything at all. That whole sentence can be communicated by the look on people's face sometimes. You know that look? An attitude of, I told you so, even though the words have never passed our mouth, maybe. Uh, the judgments we render by our silence. See, the primary ways that human beings manage and manipulate each other is two ways. It's either through attack or withdrawal. We use attack and withdrawal 
as tools to manage other people. Silence and avoidance can be ways that we withhold love. Our silence towards others, whether intentional or unintentional, can create an environment where people do not feel welcome. We can do that with our silence. This one's the saddest to me. These people aren't like me. These people aren't like me. We self-edit ourselves into certain groups, and we're quick to cancel those who think differently than us. We're so quick to categorize and label people. We're so quick to render a judgment. Those aren't my people. They're not like me. But I say, thank God we're not all alike. Thank God for the diversity and richness of the body of Christ. And whenever you're tempted to say, those people there, they're not like me, remember this. You are created in the image of God. Your gender, the way you identify, your socioeconomic standing, your race, your education level, you're created in the image of God. And he values his image. That's the first thing you got to remember. The second thing you got to remember, you got a problem with sin. I don't care who you are, or where you've come from, or how long you've been going about this. You got a sin problem. And number three, only Jesus saves. Only Jesus Christ can fix you in the ways that you need fixed and to make a right relationship with God. If we remember this common ground, this common ground is so wide, it, in- it includes humanity. There's a place for us to stand because of what Christ has done on our behalf and what he desires to continue to do. All right, well, that's just hopefully got you thinking a little bit. So you're not just kind of like those silly Corinthians. I'm sure glad we don't have problems like that. Paul goes on. He says, I thank God I did not baptize any of you except Crispus and Gaius, so no one can say that you were baptized in my name. You know, I don't see any kind of emphasis or focus on who is doing the baptizing in Scripture. In fact, Paul is saying, I'm glad I didn't do this. Because you're using this to build the faction's narrative. 
And he's just glad that they don't, a lot of them don't have the ammunition to, to say, well, Paul baptized me, so who, who baptized you? And then I love this next verse. Yes, I also baptized the household of Stephanas. Beyond that, I don't remember if I baptized anyone else. I find this little addition just delightful. A little treasure that highlights the authenticity of the Bible and the scriptures we've received. I can just imagine, it says, co-authored with Sosthenes. If Sosthenes is helping write all this down and Paul's just talking and saying this and, uh, and Sosthenes being like, uh, well, what about Stephanus? And then Paul being like, oh, yeah, Stephanus and Sosthenes. I already wrote it down. And where's the whiteout? They didn't have whiteout for their papyrus. So they just write verse 16. And I love it because Paul, if you can infer tone from a scripture, it's, it's slightly, there's a slight annoyance here that I find delightful. Yes, I also baptize the... And I don't know if that annoyance is because it's interrupted his train of thought or because he's truly frustrated that he can't remember certain things anymore. (laughs) Paul, the apostle to the Gentiles, we put him on this shelf of superhuman. And now he's talking about things he can't remember. I love it. I love it. It gives me hope as your preacher. (laughs) Finally, for Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not with wisdom and eloquence, lest the cross be emptied of its power. We love eloquent people. An eloquent preacher can help us find the words that describe the realities of our heart. An eloquent eloquent teacher can bring back to us ideas of beauty and mystery, help re-enchant the world to us, can help grow our faith. We value that, rightly so. But Paul knows that wise decisions and smooth words, they're not enough for us. And as a church, if all we have is wisdom and eloquence, we're in real trouble. We need way more help than that. We tend to be enamored with people that have eloquence and who we perceive as having some wisdom. We love knowledge. We highly esteem educated people. We're constantly looking for experts to validate our positions, to help tell us what to think, to... You ever notice that about our culture? It's like we feel less and less freedom to be self-thinkers. And like it's almost become like, what am I supposed to think about this scripture? Well, I need a commentator or someone so to tell me what to think with this. 
person who just reads it and in faith acts on it, The problem with this is when we start to be enamored to the point where we choose credentials over character, where we choose eloquence over sincerity, praise God that the cross of Jesus Christ calls us back from all of the pretense that we make and all the games we play. And the cross of Christ gives us the common ground that we all stand on. See, what Jesus does for us and what he gives to us, the Holy Spirit will take that and move us from a place we're just barely putting up with each other of a place of tiptoeing around the issues. It will remind us of the place that we all stand, this common need we have before the cross of Jesus Christ. And the more serious you are about your calling, the more serious about the holiness of God, the more focused you are on the cross of Christ, the easier unity is going to be for us. The mission of God, we hold that there. It gives us all the common ground that we need. Dad, you can come up. Uh, I've been doing a lot of crying this week. And I wish I had eloquent words. But all I have is a cross. Because we shared a dream together of a little girl named Bree Heater. We all poured it on the line. And we did not withhold our hearts. And we did everything we could. I don't have eloquence. I'm not strong enough as your preacher. All I have is the cross of Jesus.
and faith to know. That Bree is with your mom and she's with Jesus. And I cling to that hope. And if we cling to the hope of the cross of Christ, we have a place to stand. And we have common ground to be united in heart and mind and to have some semblance of hope. Let's uh, stand and sing together.